Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. It's good to see you, Jim. I you. <laughs> I've missed everybody. Good to see a bright, chipper, ready to go group of people. That's right. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I've been reading this tome. Yeah. <laughs> that could, that's a lifelong project. It is a big book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I take notes after every section, so I know <laughs> so I'll get lost. It, it is a huge undertaking. I mean, he's so careful in presenting, okay, here's what's wrong. Yep. yep. I think that's almost what it takes. It, it's not a difficult read. No. You know, it's, uh, he writes well. You've now read Douglas Campbell in preparation for the class. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just read the whole book in one night. Yeah, yeah, speed reading. Yeah. You you could read the page numbers in one night. I think. <laughs> uh, I can't claim to have read the whole book. And so, what I've tried to do, and I hope I've been successful, is to pick those parts that will make sense. You know, that is kind of the heart of his argument. And, of course, the danger in that is you will miss the logic, just his overwhelming, compelling logic that is there in the rest of the book. And I am myself guilty. Having read most of that now, I can't think of it any other way. That what we're encountering in Romans chapter 1 to 4 one, you know, chapter four for me was never, I never thought that was, even in, even in his writing, I think it's obvious what's happening in four. But in one to three, it may not be so obvious that there is, then Paul is giving voice to this teacher and refuting that argument. And, and he will carefully go through and say, this clears it up. And I have to admit, yeah, that agrees with my own, you know, I, I, I focused probably wrongly on six to eight. I could have included five. I'll be honest that as I ventured into doing anything with the New Testament, it made me very nervous because I'm not a New Testament scholar. So I narrowed it down. And even six to eight, my reading of that is very much focused that I'm doing. That's where Zizek and Lacan are focused. But anyway, so we're reading... Campbell, and I'm reading, I hope I've picked sections. Basically, we're spending most of the class on Romans 6 to 8. If, if you read something and you're not convinced, I haven't chosen enough of Campbell. I haven't given you enough to read because the oh, he's just compelling. He's saying, okay, here's the, here is the problems that a traditional reading creates. And then he, you know, he goes through very carefully and shows how his reading undoes the problems. The last thing that we will do is read the rest. So, and that's the way Campbell actually does it. So he devotes seven pages, seven sixty-five to eight thirty-three, the rest of Romans. In that, we'll focus especially on nine to eleven. I think his reading is still critical that with that. But I think if we, when we set one and eight, one to eight in the proper perspective, the other parts are not, except nine to 11, there's no huge problems. I deal with some of the problems. I just wanted to ask Paul, how long did it take you to uh, be convinced of the teacher? Because I'm, I've been taking it in, listening to it, kind of thinking about it. I can't say I've dived in very deep, but I think it might take take a few pages reading to convince me. I read most of his opening chapters, and at the end of that, I was convinced. And I, I have to admit, I had read a review of Campbell's book, and somebody characterized this in a review very poorly. Don't ever take a review of a book for 
bad, bad way to start. You know, they said, oh, Campbell's equating the false teacher with the, the book of Solomon. He does a little bit of that, but it, the guy had misconstrued what Campbell is doing. And I think that partly influenced me early on. I thought, ah, I don't buy that. But that's not, Campbell is doing something, something much more careful than, if, you have, if somebody hasn't read his book, and I was guilty, and so was, the, I'm afraid, the person who did the review. I doubt they read the whole book. It is such a huge, it's such an important argument. Probably this is where I was, was at theologically, and I was trying to deal with chapters 1 to 3, trying to shift it around and, you know, make it make sense. I don't think you can do it in the end. If you don't see that Paul is giving voice to this false teacher, I don't think, especially chapters one to three, I don't think four is a problem, actually, for me. I But one to three, I think, makes no sense apart from positing this understanding. And, of course, what we all, we, we don't want to say that because we don't want to say, well, Paul makes sense. Well, yeah, yeah, I think Paul makes sense. But... What has happened is we've blended the false teacher and Paul. So we get neither the false teacher nor Paul in this. So yeah, I understand it's a huge it's a huge argument. He said the book was hard to write. It turned out to be really long. So if he was willing to write it and and say it and take the time to do it. Because I'm right there with him theologically and otherwise. I, everything late makes sense, and I want it to be the way it's read, but I also struggle with understanding it. I just don't have my, my mind wrapped around it yet, and maybe this exercise to do for next week will, will help. And I'm going to run it down tonight. Okay. I'm doing it too quick, but at least let me make the case tonight. First of all, I think we need to say a good word about the Protestant Reformation. The, the Protestant Reformation, in its focus on the unconditional good news of the gospel, and there are interpreters of both Luther and Calvin that are taking that unconditional good news quite seriously. I did a blog in which Alvin Kimmel actually traces those. I, uh, Matt Bonchuk, you're familiar with, who is it, Jensen, that does this. It's the Torrances. They do this in conjunction with the Reformation. And so there are people reading the Protestant Reformation and truly reading it unconditionally. In other words, they're saying, and there's even a group in uh, Finland, I think they're in Finland, that uh, Matt Welch, you'd be interested, that they are, because of their location, they're very much in dialogue with Eastern Orthodox theologians. And they're even arguing that uh, Luther defended something like apocatastasis or theosis. In other words, there is a portion of Luther in which he he is clearly defending an unconditional gospel. The problem is there's a portion of Luther in which he's clearly not. That that is that Luther is fusing two things, and I think we're all the heirs of Luther's fusion of conditionalism and unconditionalism. I think Paul's gospel is so radical not only for us, but I think for the original readers. In other words, if we had to say tonight, and, and even this starting point, I think is significant. Why did Paul write the book of Romans? Previously, and the way that many people approach this, they say, well, it's a general letter. He doesn't know these people. Uh, you know, he's kind of introducing them uh, himself and getting, you know, saying, here's my gospel. And sure, there's a problem there between the Jews and the Gentiles that maybe the uh, Jews have been expelled from Rome and the Gentiles, the, they begin meeting predominantly in 
Gentile house churches as opposed to the Jewish house churches. And so Paul is trying to smooth that over. Something like that is probably the way that, that Romans is usually introduced. What Campbell is saying is that what is happening in Rome is similar to what has happened in Galatia. And in fact, it may be the same people or the same group of people. But Campbell's just going to use the teacher, you know, capital T, teacher. And so uh, Galatians and Romans are very similar in that there are these Judaizers who are going around apparently even to Rome and arguing for the necessity of keeping the law. And that's what's happening in chapters 1 to 4. Paul is taking on this Jewish teacher. The way that we've traditionally read this is, oh, Paul's taking on Judaism. It's not Judaism. I mean, it's not a, you know, if, if we imagine that 1 to 3 is Judaism, Paul comes out being anti-Semitic in his treatment. So he's not treating Judaism as the problem. He's treating this teacher's understanding of the fusion of the law with Christianity, like in Galatia, the argument is you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law to be a Christian. And he's giving full voice to this. We all, I think everybody understands, oh, we don't want to do that. But the problem is we're, we're missing that section where he's making the case and the things that are necessary to make that case. And that's what's happened with Luther's justification theory. You know, justification by faith is a perfectly good phrase, depending on what you mean by it, obviously. You know, depending on what you mean by justification and depending on what you mean by faith. And Luther will use it in contrasting ways that sometimes he'll, he'll mean faith in a good, unconditional, you know, gift, that it's not anything you do. But other times, he will make faith something that even if you doubt a little bit, then you failed to receive the fullness of God's grace. So that the work of faith, and I know that, you know, that, that Luther almost makes faith more difficult than keeping the law, because Oh, I, you know, you, you, you can always doubt. And so for, for, for 500 years, this is Campbell's argument, we've been reading the, not just Romans, but reading the New Testament with this notion of justification theory here. And Romans 1 to 4 is the citadel of this theory. In other words, if you're going to get this theory of justification, you're going to get it from these chapters. And so in this understanding, we're still using law that Christ died. You know, we're going to understand the work of Christ in conjunction with the law. So Christ died to meet the requirements of the law. Throughout this, then, there is the notion of retributive justice. That is that God's righteousness is measured by the law and met it out according to the law. And in this, punishment and wrath are primary. So that Christ died to appease the wrath of God or satisfy God or satisfy the law. And what goes with this, and it comes directly from, from uh, these chapters, is the peculiar anthropology in which this has to be the case. And that is that man has the capacity, all people, you know, that's the argument, that Jews know through the Old Testament and the rest of humanity knows due to the law written on the heart, all people have an understanding, first of all, of who God is. They're monotheistic in their heart, I guess. They know God, that is, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and that he's a just God, and that he requires justice, or and that he judges, then, breaking of the law. 
And of course, I never met anybody in Japan that had any part of that understanding. You know, can you get that understanding from natural revelation? It's a huge task. And, and what it does, it makes human knowledge and human understanding. You understand, even in Calvin's, we still, even though we're, we may be talking uh, about total depravity, nonetheless, there is this huge weight put upon human capacity. And then what they come to recognize, everybody comes to recognize, and this is why you become a Christian, is I can't keep the law, and Jesus has done it for me, therefore I accept Jesus. And, and then Paul, you know, then the New Testament is read that way, and Paul's biography is read that way. Uh, and so Christian faith, you know, first of all, the, the righteousness of God here, and this is Campbell spends a lot of time taking this apart. What Paul is doing with dikaisune or the, the righteousness or the justice of God is tying it directly to Christ. Whereas in typical justification theory and in the understanding of actually the teacher, the teacher and justification theory are going to overlap on several things. And this would be one of them, that God is primarily a God of justice and requiring that we keep the law. And so what is the gospel in this justification theory? The gospel is understood in conjunction with the law, so that works of the law, certainly everybody agrees, oh yeah, works of the law, well, not everybody. The teacher doesn't agree. The teacher's still arguing for works of the law. But justification theory fuses Paul and the teacher to imagine that works of the law are judged inadequate, but you have to come to that understanding to reach the realization, I, I can't meet those requirements, therefore faith is required. Okay, that's, that's in some justification theory and its reading of the New Testament, its understanding of God, its understanding of human anthropology, its understanding of epistemology, and its understanding of the gospel. Everybody have a grasp on what justification theory, and obviously we're here, we're using justification theory as a kind of shorthand way of conditional salvation in Luther's phrase. And so where do we get this? Well, we get it primarily from Romans chapter 1 to 3, I think. Chapter 4 is there. I, I don't see 4 as quite so important in this. 1, 18 to 32 is the frame of retributive justice. Retributive justice, this is an identification of who God is and the way that he relates to us. And that's there. I think that's there in chapter 1, 18 to 32. And in this, then, everybody, the, the pagans, you know, and, and the question, you know, who are these pagans that the false teacher is talking about? Well, it's quite likely the pagans that he has in mind are the Roman Christians. So he's saying, oh, you, you Roman Christians, you Gentile Roman Christians, you need to repent. You're not keeping the law. They're subverting the gospel. Uh, and so the pagans understand the law through the natural revelation, through available light, and then he pictures their kind of degenerative culpability. And there, that's that whole section, you know, dealing with human sexuality and a degenerate understanding. And then chapter 2, 1 to 8, the implications for Jews and Gentiles of a law of a retributive law-based system are universalized. So, okay, everybody's under this law. Now, Paul is taking the argument of the teacher and pushing it, right? He's using the logic of the teacher. And so the implications of this law-based system are universalized. And then 2, 9 to 29 are working within the logic of this system. 
it demonstrates that pagans who keep the law in this false teacher's own understanding might be said to be the true authentic Jews. And the Jews who don't keep the law, you know, well, that undoes his own argument. So that the benefits of the Old Testament are thrown into question by the logic of the teacher himself. This is not Paul, but the logic of the teacher. And what becomes obvious, as Douglas Campbell demonstrates, is that Paul is not advocating the benefits of Judaism. So am I thinking correctly, Paul is sort of, um, Paul is sort of making a parody of the teacher? Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's saying, here's this teacher's arguments, yeah. and he's tearing it down. You know, Paul actually does this in a lot of places, and a, and a good exercise I didn't do for you. I think Campbell does it. Just go through other places where Paul does this very commonly. He'll say, you know, he'll say, shall we sin that grace may abound? You know, that's here. Well, clearly that's not Paul. And Paul does that many places. He gives voice, and he's doing that throughout. One eighteen, you know, to 32 is the teacher. So he's giving this long section to voice the argument of the teacher. That, I think, may be unusual in Paul that he would give this, but he's also spending these first four chapters, and Campbell's point is that we don't have access to what is happening in the Greek, and that is that in the Greek, that to his original readers, Paul's voice and his voice of the teacher is going to be obvious, just in the way, just in the tone. You know, usually even in his short little arguments with himself, it's usually obvious, oh, that's not Paul. Campbell's point is, yeah, in the original it, it was obvious. And and in, in fact, he may at points be quoting the teacher with whom they, they're familiar. So, yeah, he's, he's hoisting him on his own petard is the way that Campbell puts it. And so Paul is refuting the premises of the teacher, like the false teachers at Galatia, and he's advocating that the teacher is advocating a law-keeping Christianity. Obviously, justification theory is not doing this explicitly. But I'm saying, and Campbell is saying, yeah, but implicitly they end up doing that because the law becomes the guide of what Christ is. Everybody, I hope you have in view, in mind, from our other classes, unconditional salvation, right? Unconditional means Christ is definitive of creation. Christ is definitive of the Old Testament. Christ is definitive of the law. Christ is definitive of Judaism. I don't know that we understand what these things are apart from Christ. Even Judaism. And, you know, that's also under contention here, because in this justification theory, we need Judaism to be a particular thing, right? We need Judaism to be a kind of uh, a retributive justice system, and that we need Jews to imagine that you're saved through works of the law, and maybe, you know, new perspective on Paul helps this a little bit, but actually, new perspective on Paul doesn't help that much because they're still defining Judaism in conjunction with the law. I think it does help quite a bit. And, and so we need Judaism to be one particular thing in justification theory. In an unconditional gospel understanding, I don't think we need Judaism to be any particular thing. And, of course, that's more in line with reality, because just look at the New Testament. Can you say that from the New Testament, Judaism is the Judaism of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, of the Essenes, of the common people? You know, what is Judaism? I don't know that you can answer that question. 
But we need to be able to answer that question in justification theory that Judaism is a kind of uh, retributive, law-keeping understanding of God. Now, from the Old Testament, you may be able to argue that there is retribution. For other places, you could argue that God is primarily benevolent. In other words, I'm not even the argument from the Old Testament. I don't think is going to take up clear, on clarity apart from Christ. But the point is that in refuting this law-keeping Christianity, in which the law is the means of being saved, you know, I've, you know, here that circumcision that you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law according to the teacher. Yeah, I, I think we get that. That clearly is the argument from Galatians. And part of the argument here, you know, this is over in 2.22 to 23. Paul argues that if possession, in other words, this teacher is saying, us Jews are at great advantage automatically. We are the chosen people. We have the law. We are the righteous ones. The circumcised are the righteous ones. The uncircumcised are the unrighteous ones. That's a very black and white argument. And so what he seems to be arguing is that there are automatic benefits conveyed by Judaism. You have to put that in place to understand what Paul is doing in chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. Again, Paul is not saying anything about Judaism. You know, here he he talks about do you who teach against adultery, you know, commit adultery, do you teach against idolatry, rob temples. What he seems to be referencing there is a actual event that Josephus refers to in which some Jewish swindlers apparently seduced a woman and tricked her out of her money by having her donate to the temple, and then they ran off with the money. I, I happen to actually just be watching the Netflix series. Have you all seen this where the people calling up asking you to donate to the police fund? The whole thing is a scandal. It's a, The whole thing is a, is a con. And they keep trying to close these people down. Anyway, it's a charity scandal. I think charity scandals have been around for a long time. You know, would you help the, the poor slain policeman who just got killed? Here in Detroit, would you be willing to help his widow? Well, who you know who's going to say no to that? But of course, they're not sending the money. They may some of these groups are more scandalous than others. But at any rate, Paul is not saying that all Jews are robbers of temples, all Jews are adulterers, and all Jews are swindlers. He's saying this. Well, this is a particular historical instance. And this then argues against the teacher's notion uh, that being circumcised is uh, an automatic benefit, an automatic identification of the righteous. And so Paul is pushing his argument, which he's doing throughout, in which he says, well, it, by your definition, not only are righteous pagans the true Jews better than these particular Jews, but the, the uncircumcised righteous are the truly circumcised, such that in the judgment, some righteous pagans might end up condemning some unrighteous Jews according to a judgment of works righteousness. Paul doesn't believe in law-keeping works righteousness judgment. He's just using that as an argument against the false teacher who does believe that. And so using the teacher's retributive justice system and its notion that all are equally culpable because God measures according to the law, that overturns the notion that the Mosaic law, you know, is, is necessarily foundational to the gospel and that there's automatic advantages. Paul say, everybody, you know, obviously by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. By that time, Paul is clearly giving voice. He's clenching his argument. 
And so chapter 3, 1 to 20, clenches the argument, pointing out that this the logic of the system means there are no advantages to possessing the law. There are no advantages to being circumcised, as there would be in a retributive Jewish system, or uh, according to this false teacher, in which Jewish sinner, you know, if Jewish sinners suffer the same punishment as degenerate pagans, then your whole argument is undone. And within this system, for God to offer leniency, and and apparent uh, this part, you know, apparently even the the false teacher says, well, we have the law, and Paul is saying, well, wait a minute, and this is down in three eight. They've accused him of being antinomian and of being a libertine. Why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. So those accusing Paul of being an antinomian libertine, by the logic of their own system, they're caught in this strange web in which the teacher himself, and this is Paul's point, is going to be condemned. You know, he says, if if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? That is, in their system, there is no leniency possible. And yet, apparently, even the false teachers would allow for some leniency. And on the other hand, Paul says to the false teacher, by the logic of your own system, you're condemned. And then he appeals to scriptures. Uh, and this man is apparently claiming the name of Christ. But he says, yeah, but under your own system, Christ can't deliver you. And this is where in chapter 3, you know, he states repeatedly and comprehensively, no one is in fact righteous according to the scriptures. And so, uh, what he may be alluding to here, clearly it's portions of this are the Old Testament, 310 to 18. Campbell thinks he may be even quoting the false teacher here uh, to show that his own argument and his own scriptures condemn him. And so this is Campbell's conclusion. By this point in Romans, it is apparent that the teacher's gospel is incoherent. It's opening a definition of the problem facing all pagans leads to a, a set of contradictions in relation to its continuation, its purported solution in terms of circumcision and law observance that ultimately overrule and undermine it. The logic of the system, this false teacher system, is self-refuting. Properly understood, this gospel understood in its own terms saves no one, not even its proclaimer, not even the false teacher. Uh, that's step one, point one. And if you buy that, we're reading Romans. We, we haven't started reading Paul's gospel yet, right? We're just dealing with his false, his dealing with this false teacher. The way that we usually read Romans, and I, I think we can still take 116 to 17 as a thesis statement. And, and Campbell argues with that, and yeah, I think he's right. It's not exactly a thesis statement, because he's not going to really deal with that all the way through the book of Romans. But if we understand 116 to 17, that he's tying these verses into a Christocentric understanding that when he's using the word justice or righteousness, the righteousness revealed is Christ. Christ is the righteousness of God. You know, you can't say this strong enough. And so, but the point is that Paul is not setting forth his gospel, but he's dealing with this problem. And to miss this is that he's making this argument which he's going to clearly refute. You know, by the time we get to five to eight, uh, he's clearly talking about an unconditional gospel. But to, to fuse the teachings of the false teacher with the teachings of Paul, 
makes you know this is justification theory but actually justification theory has the same you know it's it's contradictory i you know this may be a bit harsh i i did a actually on galatians that paul talks about people who teach that you have to keep the law as a cursed maybe it's too harsh to raise the issue is justification theory enough like the accursed gospel of paul to even that to say this is the gospel is contradictory because paul says this is no gospel at all certainly as demonstrated in romans chapter 5 in his gospel what is so we've got two different ideas of what the problem is in paul's gospel what's the problem people are in bondage Five six, they're helpless. Five ten, they are enemies of God. Uh, Five thirteen, death reigns over those under the law, and even over those who have not broken the law. Five fourteen. Second of all, Paul does not hold to retributive justice, nor does he imagine necessarily that Judaism is characterized by retributive justice. I mean, this is the argument in chapter 4. Uh, he is not describing, though, or refuting Judaism. He's refuting the teacher. Uh, and Paul does not think circumcision of the law conveys automatic benefits to the Jews. Uh, this is the position of the teacher. And it's the teacher's argument that pagans are peculiarly sinful. You know, he's arguing, well, the, uh, the Jews are the saved right they have salvation and the pagans they're peculiarly unrighteous and the teacher not paul imagines people this is two four to five are storing up wrath because of bad deeds that's not paul's understanding of who god is nor are they storing up good you know rewards through good deeds that's the false teacher that doesn't sound like paul at all neither paul nor judaism function according to this works of the law measure that is being described in two chapter two this is the way the teacher measures paul is not doing justification theory you know what justification theory would do is say see how helpless we are you know that through driving people to their recognition of their helplessness then they will come to christ Justification theory requires this as part of its understanding. He is demonstrating rather the contradictions of the teacher in imagining the law is the basis for God's justice. And on this basis, the teacher imagines that as a law-keeping Christian, he is better than lawless pagans. And the teacher imagines that humanity can clearly be divided between circumcised lawkeepers and uncircumcised pagans, probably including the Christians of Rome. This is 2, 6 to 12. And so these pagans, the Roman church maybe, need to repent, not because they're, you know, Paul is using the word nomos or law, and Campbell will go into this in two different ways. He's talking about the law of faith. And Christ establishes the law of faith, and they're, they're keeping the law of faith. According to this teacher's measure, only the circumcised will be vindicated at the judgment. You know, once we sort this out, then we can see what's happened in justification theory. They fused the two arguments together and tried to make sense of these two arguments. One of the things that Paul projects into that I was just taught this way all the way through Bible college is that there is the possibility for a righteous, unchristian pagan to be saved. Does Paul believe that? Does Paul believe, you know, uh, I think that's the teacher that believes that. Paul believes there are, you know, the only way you come to to salvation is through Christ. Uh, it's not that Paul believes they're righteous, saved pagans, but in the teacher's, and even the teacher may not believe this, but Paul is taking the teacher's argument and saying, according to his argument, 
there should be such people if it's strictly a works you know based system paul believes people are delivered from bondage you know we're in bondage we're delivered by christ and so no one in paul's estimate or perhaps even in a jewish estimate can work their way to heaven this is the argument of the teacher and so paul you know paul comes out looking anti-semitic or that he imagines that jews have some inherent advantage and of course the whole argument is paul does not see people as even theoretically capable of keeping god's law and thus pleasing god i mean by that means pleasing god whether you're jew or gentile no one can come to god except through christ so paul does not believe god is a wrathful wrathful retributive god set to punish and destroy the human race rather he considers that what happened in adam this is chapter 5 verse 19 through the one man's of disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous this is unconditional universal and cosmic paul does not believe people are keep capable of pleasing god apart from christ because what you're, you know, uh, the idea of pleasing God, of course, is a maybe a phrase from the false teacher. For him, for Paul, there is no back door. There is no available light. And Campbell does a lot with, you know, there's a kind of contradiction between these two laws. There's the law of the Old Testament, and then there's the law written on the heart. Through natural revelation, can we come to an understanding of the law of the Old Testament? Whatever you might say that is. Oh, the Ten Commandments. The sexual, you know, mores that are established. Can you understand Sabbath keeping? Can you understand who God is? I, I think that's contradictory. I don't think, I, I don't think you can do that. But even if you could, the point is there's two systems at play here. And Paul is using, he's pitting, and Campbell is pitting these two systems uh, against one another. You can't really do both things at one. And so for the teacher, this is 118, God's wrath is poured out on humanity now. Paul is focused on the love of God poured out on humanity through Christ. Chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, part of the issue is here, and this is, I think, where my work comes in, we've got to have a, a profound understanding of the bondage that we're subject to in relationship to death. We can't solve the death problem. Only God can do that. And that gets at the nature of the bondage. And so anything short of dependence on god uh law ethnic identity idols culture i think that's paul's argument in chapter seven all of these things have their own inherent punishment and paul explains you know he cries out wretched man that i am he's talking about his orientation to death so in my reading and I, i'll do this next week for you these two systems come into conflict over chapter seven and it's not exactly that some read it as a christian and some read it as not non-christian because some many people who read it as a non-christian uh, that chapter seven is seven to 25 is about the non-christian they're still reading it as if it's justification theory same problem <clears throat> and so the two systems are going to come into conflict here but Paul's point in chapter 7 is that sin disempowers, it deceives. Uh, the sinner is hostile to God, chapter 8. And so Paul is in chapter 4, I think he sorts this out. He's going to deal with the Jews and with the law. But his point is in chapter 5, all of humanity is entrapped by the force of sin and death. Chapter 5, verse 12. Adam unleashed death, and death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sin. Does everybody recognize the translation? Matt, I'm not doing the standard translation on 512. That's DBH's translation, right? 
Thus, death reigned from Adam until Moses. That's in everybody's translation, verse 14. And so in Paul's picture, the only solution is apocalyptic deliverance, divine rescue. The agonized eye cries out, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord has rescued me. And so this is and must be an unconditional event. And we'll, we can work out, you know, what we mean by unconditional, but we don't mean conditional by unconditional. We don't mean that faith is the condition, and that's what Luther has come to mean. This is Campbell. He says, a pessimistic anthropology dictates an unconditional solution. And I think we got to get the pessimistic anthropology down pat. There is no criteria for its activation, appropriation, or reception by humans apparent in this text. While what causality or agency is apparent, is it attributed to God? This is 8.29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, this doesn't mean we're into John Calvin here, obviously. There is, I think there is a synergism here with you know, we'll talk about later. So Campbell says, people who exist in this dire condition, and we all do according to Paul, are obviously incapable of accurate theological reflection or any positive action, ethical or salvific. They need to be rescued first and then taught to think about God and to behave correctly and Hence, the repeated focus on deliverance. We have to be delivered out of bondage. Apart from this reading, apart from acknowledgement that Paul is giving voice to the teacher and countering his argument, I think that the first three chapters, if not the first four chapters, are contradictory. Uh, and they stand, if you take it, if you fuse it, it stands opposed to Paul's gospel as we have it in 5 to 8. And this is obvious at some levels. The teacher sees law-keeping as a necessity for Christians. Paul refutes this notion. But the problem is the teacher's affirmation and Paul's refutation are combined in justification theory, effectively combining the contradictory argument that the law is necessary, and that the law is of no advantage. In other words, that's actually what justification theory is doing. And the result is neither Paul nor the teacher, in that justification theory pictures the failure of the law as the impetus to become a Christian. In other words, you've got to go through this. And Paul didn't have this view, and Judaism didn't. You know, I don't think he had this low view of Judaism. And Paul gives no, you know, where the teacher gives great credence to human rationality, Paul gives no credence to human rational capabilities. But the fusion of the two in justification theory is both. Humans are capable of understanding God, the world, the law, and themselves, but they're completely incapable of doing anything about it. So they're doing both things at once. And so the justification theory results, it, it posits a different problem than Paul does. Paul sees humanity as captive to the orientation to death and thus deluded in their ability to understand God. Uh, they can't understand themselves. They can't understand the world. And Paul would set aside the law entirely against the teacher who thinks it's a necessity. And justification theory then says both, that it fuses the two. The law is the ground for understanding Christ and the gospel, and the work of Christ is law-satisfying, law-keeping, law-establishing. You know, Christ keeps the law. He establishes the law. And the law informs the work of Christ. Where for Paul, Christ sets aside the law Justification theory has taken the false gospel of the teacher and makes the law foundational, and rather than Christ as the true foundation. 
the other thing is that Campbell will talk a lot about the forward perspective of justification theory. You know, you read creation, you read, you kind of read it consecutively, and then you come to Christ and you understand Christ because of what you've read in the Old Testament. But Paul understands everything retrospectively, that he views creation in light of Christ. He views Abraham and Moses and the law in light of Christ. And so where justification theory has Christ meeting the demands of the law, you know, imputed righteousness, you're kind of, you have a legal problem. Justification theory then sides with the false gospel of the teacher, first of all, in making law foundational and retributive justice in the forward-looking perspective, understanding Christ through the law rather than understanding the law through Christ. I think this is what Douglas Campbell has done for us, that if you read his theory, and I know I may not have given you enough to convince you, I'm hoping that through the lectures I can make up, because it is a, a massive reading, but I think he's lifted the burden of confusion surrounding chapters 1 to 4 and maybe 9 to 11 also. And I think it's irresistible that justification theory has mistaken the false teacher for Paul, and then they've muddled the, you know, they've, they've fused the things together. And the question is if we're dealing with the accursed gospel here or not. With starting with this understanding, we can prepare then for chapters five days. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.